When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week we're asking, do safe spaces and trigger warnings clash with liberal values? The American university is under attack. That's how some see the battle over what can and cannot be said on campuses, a threat to the First Amendment. This is an extraordinarily pernicious movement. Conservatives are being uh, uh, silenced in many ways. Controversial speakers are being blocked. Those kids should be exposed to other ideas. Liberals are not perfect. Is it hype? A disingenuous, political correctness gone mad kind of gripe? Or is free speech being eroded in the very institutions tasked with upholding broad liberal values? We felt that this debate sits at the centre of our Open Futures season, where The Economist, across its various platforms, has set out to explore the role of liberal values in the 21st century and some new challenges to them. So I headed to the University of Chicago, which has confronted the topic of free speech head-on, and I found their local row has wider reverberations, so we decided to dig a little deeper. The University of Chicago has a long history of supporting and protecting freedom of speech across a range of different, very controversial times in our history. And one of our correspondents reflects on his recent experience of college showdowns. It is a strange experience to read my college columns after graduation. Now that I'm a member of the professional class with a somewhat serious claim to real adulthood, it's clear that I was a bit strident at times. All coming up. But first, what's a visit to America without paying a certain founding father a visit to? American statesman, Alexander Hamilton was also one of the earliest proponents of free speech. I'm here among the hubbub of the CIBC Theatre in Chicago. I've just come out of seeing Hamilton the musical. This was the first city to stage a production of Hamilton outside New York. And now everybody knows about that mega hit. But what you might not know is that it contains, among the duelling, the feuding and the war fighting, a fleeting reference to the Federalist Papers, published in 1787. And in them, Hamilton lays out his notions of freedom and freedom of expression. And that's the subject that brought me and my producer Cheryl Brumley here to Chicago on our own inquiry. Across America, there have been widely publicised protests for and against free speech on university campuses. Phrases like trigger warning and safe spaces have entered the everyday lexicon of campus life. But in campus politics, it's a territory fraught with disagreement and raw emotion. So I've come to the University of Chicago, a place that's been in the eye of the storm. 
In 2015, administrators responded to an increase in disruptions at speaking events by convening a group of faculty to draw up a statement on free speech. The result? The Chicago Statement. It says the university has a solemn responsibility not only to promote a lively and fearless freedom of debate and deliberation, but also to protect that freedom when others attempt to restrict it. It's a declaration that's been adopted or endorsed by dozens of other colleges and universities, including Princeton and Johns Hopkins. Although it's been exported to universities across America, not everyone is in agreement here on this campus about the way the university chose to approach the contentious topic of free speech. I'm off to speak to the main author of the Chicago Statement, Professor Jeffrey Stone, and also to Elaine Hadley, Professor in the Department of English Language and Literature. And they have rather contrasting takes on a subject that's exercised public debate in America since the Founding Fathers, how free should free speech be. So Professor Stone, we're sitting in your office. I'm looking out at this extraordinary view of, of the University of Chicago, those gothic buildings in front of us. And on the wall of your office is a neon pair of lips, uh, in between which it says free speech. So I guess you've kind of nailed your colours to the mast or the wall. Uh, yes, this is uh, an issue that has uh, captured my attention ever since I was a student here at this law school. Well, let's talk about the Chicago Statement, which your name is, is primarily on. It was released in 2015. Why did you consider it necessary to drop this statement and what was behind it? So the president of the University of Chicago, Robert Zimmer, being aware of the fact that issues had arisen across a number of campuses in the United States involving disinvitations of speakers and protests against speakers, thought it would be useful for the university to have a clear statement of our values with respect to this issue. The University of Chicago has a long history of supporting and protecting freedom of speech across a range of different very controversial times in our history. But he thought it would be useful to have a clean statement about what our values are and why, and came up with this three-page statement that's meant to capture a core value of the University of Chicago, and what I think should be a core value of most colleges and universities in the United States. Well, the first uh, reaction I think many faculty had was a little bit of surprise, um, trying to understand how the document came into being and what procedures were followed and why that particular moment it emerged. So one of the things that's sort of unusual in my reception of the document was that it felt a little cranky relative to the fact that we were having very few problems on our campus and also, honestly, very few problems across the nation relative to all the free speech events that happen on a daily basis across the myriad institutions in America. And this sort of felt like an overreaction in that way. What I want to say about the myopic quality to it is that it focused quite clearly on students disrupting speakers on campus. And for me, the free speech question is a much larger question. There are many aspects to it that this university has not fully addressed. Jeffrey Stone and Elaine Hadley clearly had some disagreements about the tone and focus of that letter. But when asked about how free speech should play out in regards to specific guests, that's where the fissures in this debate really begin to show. Racists are not welcome here. 
One of the people invited to speak at the university is Steve Bannon, the former chief ideologist to Donald Trump. The university has stated it does not cancel invited speakers over concerns that their topics may be controversial. But others... So how does that invitation stir up the argument? Elaine Hadley. No, I would not be in the front row. I would not. I would support and encourage people who would like to protest outside the event and as loudly and, and raucously as within reason and safety they can. But having said that, an individual faculty member invited this gentleman, and that falls under this freedom of inquiry umbrella, and I do not support his decision to invite him. I think it was very foolhardy and myopic in a different sort of way, but he did, and so many faculty, myself included, got together and tried to converse with him about it being a bad idea and asking him not to invite him. We failed in convincing him, but that's the way the university should work, and we did everything within our power to try to convince him otherwise, and we're disappointed that he still has the open invitation to Steve Bannon, but um, there it is. He's a figure who's had real importance and impact in our government. And learning what he has to say about those issues is potentially quite informative. The professor who invited him, uh, Zingales, uh, was not someone who was inviting him as a provocateur. Uh, Zingales is actually a very responsible, very established scholar um, who disagrees with the positions of this administration and Bannon, but wanted to have Bannon here to talk about his, his views on issues of globalization and, and economic issues, not to talk about racism. And there are some more testing cases. Recently, the white supremacist Richard Spencer wrote to Jeffrey Stone asking if he could come and speak at Chicago, his alma mater. A pretty smart guy, in fact, if you read his writings, but uh, someone whose views are, in my view, off base and loathsome. He emailed me after I'd written an op-ed in the New York Times uh, criticizing another university for withdrawing an invitation that students on campus had given to him. And he said... How about if you invite me to Chicago and we can have an event? And I emailed him back and I said to him, I don't think what you have to say is that interesting. Um, So I have no interest in inviting you. But if someone here wants to invite you, I'll defend them their right to do so. Speakers come and go, but what happens in the lecture hall is always with us. Trigger warnings, the idea that you should warn students before discussing a distressing topic, has been at the centre of this debate about free speech in the academy. It's like, what are trigger warnings? Like, that's first a real question. Like, it's become a buzzword. People seem to think they know what it is. But then when you actually talk to people, they often don't know what it is. So I think there's a whole range of things that people can and cannot do in a classroom. The thing that's so complicated about this is that you talk to anybody who understands trauma and the triggering that can come from trauma, there's nothing predictable about it. Um, Freud would have told you that, you know, it could have been a pocketbook, you know. Um, And so uh, to cover everything that a young person who has a particular psychic um, trauma um, that might set them off would be impossible. So what I see in those kind of comments that I do is just a sort of like humane turn to my students and saying, we're going to be reading some really tough stuff, right? And then they can, they haven't read the stuff, they don't know, they can make decisions. And I don't see how that's you know, a diminishment of their intellectual engagement with a class. I just think it's a way of being a human with other humans. I think that, um, first of all, the question of whether to have trigger warnings is a matter of academic freedom for the individual faculty member. 
And to the extent that the faculty member thinks that there is a situation in which there's a student who is particularly vulnerable to emotional responses, it's perfectly appropriate for the faculty member to then inform the student that they may confront this. And there's no university policy about this whatsoever. Uh, similarly, with safe spaces, I think it, it's long been recognized that individual groups of, of people, including students, but people generally, um, need opportunities to talk to people like themselves uh, so that they can share their experiences, talk about them, and those safe spaces exist all over universities. There's some consensus there, at least on the role of trigger warnings, but what's driving the increasing calls to be mindful of potentially harmful speech? And who decides? Professor Jeffrey Stone showed me pictures from his days as a student at the University of Chicago Law School. And this made him reflective on the changes he's seen in attitudes over the years. So I think three things have contributed to the current situation. Um, one of them uh, is the fact that, as many people have noted, that some students of this generation have been raised by so-called helicopter parents. They've been shielded much more than their predecessors were from controversy, from frustration, and from defeat, from failure. And they didn't develop the same degree of resilience that their predecessors did to confronting ideas that they found troubling and problematic. I think that does play a role in this. A second feature of this, I think, has to do with social media. Um, when most past generations grew up, uh, most people who wound up in colleges and universities had not really been exposed to very much hateful speech. Mainstream media would never carry it, and that was the source of most of the information that they received. Uh, today, with social media, um, people are much more often uh, forced to confront with hateful speech that is insulting and degrading and loathsome. And I think that has led both the, those who were the targets of that speech to be much more vulnerable to the attack, and also those who were not the targets of the speech to be much more uh, em empathetic to their classmates and their friends who are subjected to this. And so I think their willingness to tolerate this kind of expression is much less than it was in the past, because in the past it was relatively rare and seemed kind of just irrelevant. It's not that way anymore. Professor Hadley agreed social media has driven calls for limitation of speech, but not in the way that Professor Stone described. I do feel there's a real generational divide. I, I want to say that. Um, that free speech, academic free speech, probably seemed like a very operational practice um, for a certain generation of people. Um, in the American Academy. And what I would say respectfully is instead of um, saying, young people, get off my yard, <laughs> um, it's to um, register what they might actually be trying to tell us. And, and many people turn to the fact that young people are obsessed with social media and they um, have been framed by the sort of demographical closed circuits where they only talk to people they like on Instagram or so on. But I actually have a slightly different view of that, which is I think this is a, a group that no doubt have, have been raised and grown on the internet. But that internet has opened up a version of the world to them that those of us in the older generation have not. They consume and interact in a global way that we do not. And I think we could learn something about what inclusion means in the free speech venue from the young people.
Along with a lot of other students on this sunny afternoon, I'm taking time out now, sitting on one of these wide quads among the beautiful Gothic buildings, the original University of Chicago. And I'm just meditating a bit on what I've heard from Jeff Stone and from Elaine Hadley. Jeff Stone, well, he's just clearly the First Amendment kind of guy. He's an expert on it, but he also believes that the freedoms inculcated in the idea of freedom of speech are fundamental to so many other values that liberal societies should respect. If you mess with that, he said, well, everything unravels, even if you thought that you had a good reason for curtailing freedom of speech at the time. Elaine just had a different take on this. She thought that structural inequalities influenced this argument much more. She believed also that young people were rather unfairly being derided as snowflakes or told that they were too sensitive on free speech. She thought that throwing this Chicago statement at them the moment they walked through the university doors was a bit bad-mannered and didn't allow them to help feed into this argument and define what the parameters of free speech in 2018 and beyond should look like. What about students who protest against protest, though? One of our journalists based in Washington, Idris Kaloun, reflects on his years as a student at Harvard at a time when the onslaught of demonstrations rather riled him. There's a strange ritual that occurs every semester at Harvard. On the eve of finals, students throng the yard and on the stroke of midnight, strip their bare asses and run a lap. When I was a student there in 2014, the event was met by protesters, supportive of the nascent Black Lives Matter movement. They wanted to delay the run by four and a half minutes, representing the four and a half hours that Michael Brown's body laid on the Ferguson concrete that year after he was shot and killed by a police officer. The naked mass, inebriated and rain-soaked, turned and ran the lap in the opposite direction. This spurred up all manner of criticism and outrage among the activist crowd. Antics such as these were fairly common while I was at college, and they grated on me. I had a regular column in the school newspaper and would often write critically of some of the worrying trends. Students disrupting speakers, pushing for the defunding of college newspapers unless they provided a quota to racial minorities. There was another time at Yale when students shouted down faculty who had the gall to suggest that students could self-police Halloween costumes deemed culturally insensitive. Perhaps the most disturbing example of this came when Harvard bureaucrats distributed a holiday placemat in a freshman dining hall. The placemat was essentially a propaganda manifesto, instructing students how to talk social justice over Christmas with their family members, presumably unlettered and unenlightened. The placemat even promoted the right opinion to have on the admission of Syrian refugees. To me, issuing such edicts was bad behavior for a university that values independent thought. After I heard about it, I immediately went to the newspaper offices to bash out an aggressively aggrieved column. This was well-received, or at least it was widely read, and it even garnered me a brief appearance on CNN. Good evening to you, sir. You doing okay? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So what did you think when you, when you saw this? It is a strange experience to read my college columns after graduation. Now that I'm a member of the professional class with a somewhat serious claim to real adulthood, it's clear that I was a bit strident at times. Universities often take outsized importance to students. I still agree with everything that I wrote, and indeed I've written similar critiques of what I'll roughly term social justice culture while at The Economist. But there was a real sense of existential threat in my writing, 
that the very foundation of the university, if not the project of enlightened liberal democracy itself, was in peril by the shenanigans of disruptive protesters. As the past years of elections have shown, it turns out that liberal democracy actually has much bigger worries than the bad opinions of a vocal minority of Ivy Leaguers. The fake media tried to stop us from going to the White House, but I'm president and they're not. Well, that's all from today's Economist Asks. Do tell us what you think. Who should be allowed to speak on college campuses and who shouldn't? Should we issue trigger warnings and provide safe spaces? And are these measures liberal or illiberal? Join the debate. Go to economist.com slash open future. Email us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag open future. And for more on free speech, listen to The Week Ahead tomorrow when we'll be exploring how this culture of offence is affecting the world of stand-up comedy. We need to make mistakes as comedians, and sometimes those mistakes include saying something that is just offensive without being funny because we're not done with it. But we need the words to come out of our mouth to hear the reaction, to then craft it and make it better the next time. I'm Anne McElvoy in Chicago. This is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.